Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up, two childhood friends reunite after 82 years. Samaritan's Purse packs almost 3 million boxes for kids at Christmas and the good works of Habitat for Humanity. Next. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Robert Reeves, the Democratic leader in the House, Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11, and Donna King, editor-in-chief of Carolina Journal. Jonah, let's begin with the story of two childhood friends recently reunited. What I love about this season, and even though I don't celebrate Christmas, I do embrace the Christmas spirit, and I love the festivities around the holidays, and I love the universal principles and celebration of family and togetherness and lifelong friendships and renewal, the spirit of renewal. And that was apparent in this magnificent story of hope. Two childhood friends, age nine, in 1939 Germany, they said goodbye to each other. They were two Jewish friends who went to school. And because of the Nazi rise to power. Holocaust. Yeah, the Holocaust, right before their parents decided to flee Germany. They didn't know where they were going. They were nine years old. They didn't know what was at stake. One family went to Shanghai, China. Another family went to Chile. Now, these two friends, their names were Betty and Anne-Marie, they didn't know where each other was going. And in fact, for 80 years, they thought maybe the other one perished, was murdered, along with the other six million Jews in that Holocaust. There's something called the USC Shoah Foundation, Shoah being the Hebrew term for the Holocaust. And this is something that's sponsored and created by Steven Spielberg, and they are recording the testimonies of survivors while they can. And of course, we all know you can defeat Hitler, but you're never going to defeat time. And there was an indexer. There was someone who was watching all these testimonies and said, wait a minute, there, something about these two stories kind of rings true, or there's something very similar. And it turns out they put these two survivors in touch, and it was these two friends. So first, during the pandemic, they met right. on Zoom. They had a couple of conversations. And then once things calmed down, they got their vaccines. And they also said to themselves, Hitler couldn't get us. We're not going to let a vaccine get us. So they met up in Tampa. They shared just a amount of day. They said they were attached at the hip. And after 82 years, they're now 91. It was just, I, how can you not believe in miracles when you hear about something Donna, like this. Donna, what struck you about this story? Well, I think the work that the Shoah Foundation is doing is really what got me, because they're making sure that these stories are recorded, uh, because we're not too long where there won't be many uh, Holocaust survivors left among us, and, and knowing that their stories are out there, they're a part of history, that they're documented uh, with video and stories and all of that is really important to making sure that the next generation hears it firsthand from those who survived such a horrific uh, part of our history. 
uh, and it's also so the next generation knows to be watching and be paying attention to what's happening on happening in the world with Uyghurs in China and some of these other things that we're really hearing about now. Um, I think it's important that what the Shoah Foundation is doing gives hope and continues telling their story. Robert, the power of relationships. It's just the thought that somebody that could have developed a friendship at nine years old and it'd be so powerful that when they saw each other again That's 82 years point. later that it still hold that same strength and think of the comfort that it gave them. Mitch? How great is it that the people who are working on this at the show Foundation, who are probably going through tons of stories, noticed that these two stories were so similar? Right. They've these like people, 20,000. Yeah, right. and they're looking at all of these stories, they see these two that are so similar and say, huh, maybe these folks are related. Because you easily could have said, I've got a ton of work, this is important stuff, but not see these similarities. And that story would not have happened if the folks putting these testimonies together hadn't noticed it. And these, Wrap this up in about 40 seconds. Well, friend. these testimonies are now going to be part of a North Carolina curriculum because let's point out that in the budget that was passed last month by the North Carolina General Assembly is the Gisela Abramson Holocaust Education Act. And that mandates Holocaust education in North Carolina public schools. There's already a Holocaust committee that's part of the NC Department of Public Instruction. And with the number of survivors dwindling, these are the witness statements that are going to endure, and now it's going to be law here in North Carolina, and I'm very proud of that. Great conversation. Donna, let's talk about Samaritan's Purse. They're doing great work this year. Amazing work, All, as every, like they do every year for the last 50 years. A lot of us have filled a shoebox and, and donated it, and sometimes you don't always know where it goes, but I'll tell you where it goes. Where a lot of them go is to a processing center in Charlotte. Uh, there, about 40,000 volunteers are going to process 3 million shoeboxes. Uh, these shoeboxes go all over the world. In many cases, they are um, the, they are a child's first only Christmas gift, their first contact with Christianity, and that's something that Samaritan's Purse uh, does th throughout the year, not just at Christmas. They work really hard making sure that people have clean water. Uh, they help, you know, spread uh, spread their faith, spread Christianity throughout the world. And one of the things they're working on right now is helping Afghan translators, Afghan refugees uh, settle into a new life. They are charged. They charge take this charge on uh, year-round, and it's something that a lot of folks even see as a Christmas gift. When they go on their website, they can uh, give in the name of a loved one. And these uh, Samaritan's Purse boxes, toiletries and little toys and those things, um, really take love and the Christmas spirit around the globe. Jonah, they're also very involved in the Middle East with refugees. Well, and look, when we think about Afghanistan, we remember the images as we wrap up the year of the flights out of Afghanistan. We haven't really heard a lot about what happened next. And there's a North Carolina connection to this because there are airmen and there are women from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base who are working at these various uh, army posts and, and uh, marine camps in different places. And this one in particular, uh, which is at uh, Camp Liberty in Fort McGuire, Joint Base McGuire-Dix, Lakehurst in New Jersey. There's about 11,000 Afghan refugees there. And look, there are Syrian refugees. There are uh, from Burma, Myanmar. I mean, when we think well, about American refugees, Purse goes right up into the war zone to help these refugees, and they need it. And that's also, I mean, the, the universal aspect of these holidays reminds us of the commonality among us as humans. And even if there's a language barrier, we still cherish our families, we still cherish our faith, and we still need the simple pleasures of life to survive. Mitch. 
This reminds me, of course, about the power of civil society. Governments can and do many important things, but you also need people who are acting outside of the context of the public sector to be doing the types of things that Samaritan's Purse does. And because the United States is such a successful country, you have people who are willing to give to charities, not just Samaritan's Purse, but groups of all types of all faiths that are willing to put forward this effort. That is something that we should take comfort in. Robert, my friend. And what hits me about the whole story is the fundamental message that it gives about love. And I don't think that that can, and it really kind of goes with what you're saying, Mitch, in the sense of the power of people reaching out. You know, not being forced by a government, not being told what they've got to do, but people just reaching out and just saying, I don't care what your story is, what your situation is, I love you, here's something I want to do to help you. And what that will mean is that, that that will make an indelible mark on whoever is affected mm -hmm. by that. And I mean, that one interaction is going to change lives. That's a really good point because there's 40,000 volunteers helping with this, Donna. Absolutely. There are, are Christians and volunteers putting their hand on that box, praying over it, um, filling it with things that, that folks need all over the world. And one of the things that's a really important thing that I didn't bring up the first time around, this is a North Carolina group. You know, they're headquartered in Boone. Uh, so these are North Carolinians that are packing these boxes, that are putting their heart and soul into this, this giving um, process uh, year-round, not just at Christmas time. Jonah, any final thoughts? Well, and there's so many other great North Carolina organizations. I was at a place called Rise Against Hunger in their warehouse in Raleigh, and they were sending shipments to Civil War-torn areas like Haiti and Nicaragua and other places. And because of the Internet, let's celebrate it. You're able to find out about all these places, go to the resources, you know, check out the Red Cross and this other great organization. This, I mean, there are ways for you to give and fill your soul and, and, and while also filling the hearts and stomachs, potentially, of people in need. Okay, Robert, you had a, brought a good story to my attention. That's Chatham County's uh, Habitat for Humanity. Talk to us about that. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting because I remember my very first interaction with Habitat for Humanity was when I was growing up, a fourth grade teacher, Ms. Hobson. And I never knew what it was. And I, and I just knew that she was nice and she's doing something nice and that's it. So push this forward to the first time I'm running, the first year I'm running for elections, 2014. And uh, one of the folks I got a chance to work with was a lady named Becky Laughlin. And you know, the first thing she said is like, we're doing this Habitat for Humanity. You know, want you to see it, want you to see what's going on. And it's an amazing thing that they've done in Chatham. When you think of growth, the, the first thing you think are all the positives, you know, all the things that are going to come whenever we've got people coming to the county. I know you guys in Wake County know what I'm talking about. And you, you, you think of that, but you don't think of the other part of it. And that is that the most valuable thing that people care about in their life journey beyond their family and their faith is a home. And how a simple pleasure like that we can sometimes take for granted. The Habitat for Humanity builds these homes and they've got tons of volunteers. Jerry Wharton now runs it um, as the executive director in Chatham County and it becomes a real project. They get local contractors, you know, local, you know, regular folk that never built a house before working on building these houses and then they do a huge presentation to the families and these families, you've never seen joy like you do on the faces of these families when they get these homes. And, you know, and it's something that they've helped build, they've helped produce, and it just means the world. And just uh, when, when you see people giving them their time, effort, money, because, again, this is a, you know, not-for-profit 
any type of situation. This is something where people are doing this, and they're doing this all of the time. The Chatham County Habitat for Humanity may be the busiest that I've seen, and they really do some great work. Mitch, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Jimmy Carter's work in this area. Yeah, I mean, he started it. So Habitat for Humanity was really his brainchild, got it going. Uh, the best Habitat for Humanity story I've ever heard came out of uh, the tragedy that was Hurricane Andrew that swept through Florida, knocked down all kinds of structures. And I remember distinctly hearing a report from someone saying that they would go through neighborhoods or, or sections of the city and the only buildings that were still standing were the Habitat for Humanity homes because they're built so well. The people go in and they aren't just building to barely meet code. They're, they're, all those people are volunteering. They're putting in their love, their time. And the people who get the Habitat for Humanity homes have to have done some work. They don't just give them to people. They have to have done something to, to qualify for it as well. Donna, there's other groups like this for vets, too. Tunnels for Towers that helps build houses for vets that have lost their lives, their families. There are, and I think that it speaks to exactly what Mitch said earlier. This is, this is about, uh, you know, in many cases, um, private charities uh, picking up the hammer, picking up the mantle, moving on and, and helping those in their community. But one of the important things, I think, is about Habitat for Humanity is it's not about giving people free houses. Um, this, uh, they have to save the money for closing costs. They have to make a mortgage payment. Um, they are taking the value of the house and it's a 0% 20 or 30 year mortgage and they take into consideration uh, the homeowner's um, income when they establish what that mortgage will be. They have to put in sweat equity, you know, three, 300, 500 hours of sweat equity on their own home, on others' homes. So this is a real investment by the homeowners, not just the volunteers. Jonah. As we move into 2022, uh, you know, when we think about public-private partnerships, Habitat for Humanity, I hope, challenges and raises the standards for government to come up with some creative ideas and solutions for the affordable housing crisis. And how do we teach people, not really just teach them, but empower them to make better decisions for their families. When you are, are given this opportunity to purchase a home, I mean, it empowers a family to take control of their lives. It teaches them about fiscal responsibility. It also enables a child. I mean, what did we learn in the pandemic about the stability of a home life, how that could give so much more uh, for intellectual growth and be able to do well in school and then a healthy diet and all these things, uh, they are all connected. And how do we uh, bridge the gap between marginalized communities and those who are privileged? This is how it starts. And uh, again, credit to uh, the ingenuity of Habitat for Humanity. And, um, you know, I, it, it's, you're on, man. Anyway, I want to move on because there's a great story about a North Carolina sailor coming home who was killed at Pearl Harbor, finally coming home to Albemarle, I think, in March. We're talking about Navy Seaman First Class Edward E. Talbert, who was assigned to the USS Oklahoma, which was uh, at Ford Island in Pearl Harbor when the Japanese forces attacked 80 years ago, December 7th, 1941. 429 crewmen on that particular ship, among the, the other ships as well, were killed, including uh, Talbert. His remains, along with the rest of the remains, were buried at the time. They were disinterred in 1947 with the attempt to try to identify some of these people so that families could get some closure. But at the time, only 35 of the 430 people were able to be identified. And so the, the rest of the remains were buried and called the unidentified. But some years later, in the time frame of uh, 2015 or so, something called the Defense POWMIA Accounting Agency went back, looked through the remains, used some more 
uh, up-to-date methods to try to identify some of the remains and one of the people that they were able to identify as being part of the unidentified remains was Navy Seaman First Class Edward E. Talbert. He's going to be returned to his hometown of Albemarle and will be buried on March 26th. Donnie, do you think uh, the generations today appreciate what the greatest generation did? kids today I think it's our responsibility to make sure they do. I think that this story really speaks to who we are as Americans, uh, that we are committed to our lot to life, we're committed to each other, we're committed to our history. Um, if you look at what technology has brought us now, there will not be another unidentified soldier because we have the technology to be able to identify those who sacrificed, made the ultimate sacrifice. Um, and I think that that is something powerful. I think that also we only have about 1%, half a percent of the population because we got rid of the draft in the 70s, that even serves in the military. And, and when you're talking about less than 1% of our communities, our adult community, serves in the military, that means it's incumbent upon the rest of us to make sure that our children and future generations appreciate the sacrifice of the greatest generation and all of those who've served You after. know, we're losing about 1,000 of the greatest generation a day, Jonah. Again, I bring back that point where you can defeat Hitler, you can defeat the Axis powers, you're not going to defeat time. And that's just a sobering fact of life. And I think the challenge for for us, for younger generations who, like, I mean, I'm on the older side of millennials, and I've kind of bridged that gap. My grandfather was a World War II veteran. My wife's family, uh, her grandfather was a Holocaust survivor from Austria. Um, how do we communicate these stories? But how do we also instill within our children that same identity and responsibility and that notion that we are part of a collective community? We're in this I generation, the iPod, the iPad, the you know headphones on, we're always watching. I mean, we're kind of internalized. Not much we. It's my team, it's my this, it's my thought, you know, it's my vaccine, right. it's my body, it's this. But when does it become this collective idea that we're all in this together and, and we're all in this as Americans? And when it's such a interwoven global community too, how do we build an identity and one that right. respects everyone but also finds commonalities? Robert? One of the things that I think are important that everybody's already talked about is that you've got to talk about history. You've got to talk about what happened. And I, and I think that there's nothing better than being able to get it from the people who talked to, who lived it. I know one of the great experiences I've had being in the General Assembly is when they bring back the WW2 veterans. And when you see them up there, there's every race, nationality, background, religion, and they look like those 90 plus year old folks, soldiers, they look like school kids when they get back together again because they're so happy to see each other. And we've, it, it, and it's just like you said, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that people understand what the sacrifice actually was because it's one thing to hear, well, there was a war, people went and fought, and that's it. But when you really get in-depth stories of an 18-year-old that's right. never been outside of the city, mm -hmm. much less outside of the country, that means something. Let's talk about some inspiring stories this week. This is a sad story that ends up having uh, a happy end. There was a fellow from the Triangle named Joseph Moss, and last July he was uh, diagnosed with Lyme disease. That was in July, and then a couple of months later he ended up getting COVID and pneumonia, and he had such bad lung damage he had to get a double lung transplant. That was successfully done in October, but shortly afterward he suffered a setback and had irreversible brain damage. But that's the sad part of the story. The, the part that's going to be uplifting is that he will end up now being an organ donor.
for three other people. His wife and daughter were uh, called it a, a miracle. I mean, they're sad to lose the father and the husband, but they're happy that three other people can live because of him. And the other caveat is the daughter has been living for seven years since getting a heart transplant of her own at Duke. Well, wow, Robert. Uh, there's a new stem cell treatment that looks like it's cured a man of diabetes one. And I think diabetes is one of those forgotten diseases because it's not immediately fatal. It causes all these other things that make you become fatal. And so this uh, family had gotten into the, to a trial and then they found out that the diabetes had gone into remission. And so we're hoping that the stem cell research will really help people with that disease. Great catch. Jonah? Gabby Giffords, who's the former Arizona congresswoman uh, who was shot uh, and injured while campaigning, she just had her bat mitzvah at age 51. And uh, that is a Jewish ceremony that normally, if you're a girl, it's 12 years old. If you're a boy, 13, you have a bar mitzvah. Um, it just shows you that really at any age, though, you can embrace your faith, your identity, and you can learn something new. And so, mazel tov, Gabby. <laughs> Donna. Um, I thought this one was really interesting. Hopefully, we're all getting chewing gum in our stockings, but maybe not any gum. So the University of Pennsylvania has developed a chewing gum that they say can trap and kill the COVID virus in saliva. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that it's cheap to make. If it, if it works out, it's cheap to make and they can mass distribute it in areas of the world where treatments are, are uh, less effective and, and some of the more modern medicine that we, in, that we enjoy here aren't as readily available. So chewing gum, who would have thought? How far along are they? Uh, they're still in there in the very beginning stages. They're starting human trials on it. Um, but they say that it's early, but promising. Well, I see uh, with uh, with COVID and what is it, Omicron now, they're not sure that they're going to need a vaccine for this. Have you heard that? I have heard that. I think that they're learning more and more about it every day, and it seems to um, not be as dangerous as the Delta variant that we've heard a lot about over the summer. Um, but there, you know, more information is coming out all the time. Well, I think we're learning to live with it, don't you? I think Hershey would get involved. <laughs> that would make it a lot more appealing, I think, I for a lot of people. Coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, we just pray that this holiday, just everyone is, is healthy and well, and may we all have only good news in the new year. Okay, who's been naughty and nice this year, Mitch? My naughty list is those organized bands of smash and grab robbers. I mean, there you could talk about many reasons for this, maybe public policy, but whatever the reason, these folks have been causing all kinds of havoc, especially in cities like San Francisco. And during this time when people are uh, shuffling to try to get their, their gifts, uh, we don't want to see those organized uh, bands of robbers. My nice, this is a nice honor for two basketball legends. Now, we know, we're tar, we're tar Heels, but we know that the people on the Board of Transportation are not all UNC grads. <laughs> Despite that, they voted unanimously to rename seven miles of Interstate 40 after Roy Williams and Dean Smith, two of the all-time great basketball coaches. Robert? Well, on the naughty list, I think some folks will say oil companies. Uh, while we've been struggling with high gas prices, oil companies have had record profits this year. And so they say it's not our fault, but uh, I think some people will say that it is. But on the nice list, have I mentioned Toyota? Toyota. Toyota. <laughs> Your own message. How many jobs? How many jobs? How many jobs? How many jobs are you going to create? 1,750 jobs out the gate. And then what we're hoping, obviously, is what that does to the rest of the area and it spans out uh, exponentially. Jonah? Yeah, weeks later, it's still a big deal for us. Um, who's on the naughty list? Well, I'll, I'll give this guy an A for effort. So in Italy, they also have vaccine requirements, especially for physicians and dentists and nurses and all things. So there was a dentist who went and got his vaccine, or so they thought. He came with a fake arm made of silicone. So he's a real anti-vaxxer. 
<laughs> Whatever. Anyway, he was caught. He faces federal charges, and now he claims he actually got his vaccine in his real arm. But, like, dude, if you're going through that much effort, just get the thing. Whatever. Uh, okay. okay. Anyway, uh, and who's nice? nice? Um, so we're taping this on a Friday. Uh, tomorrow, Christmas, Mary Brown uh, is a Raleigh woman. She has teamed up with uh, a number of restaurants in Raleigh and every year does this great thing in City Plaza where they collect clothing and coats and they make a huge meal from all the restaurants for the homeless and, and the invisible homeless, those who live in hotels. And that is finally back after the pandemic and they tried to collect backpacks last year over the summer. And so if you're around, you're watching this and you wanna to go to City Plaza tomorrow, downtown Raleigh, what a phenomenal event. Uh Amazing. Okay, so my naughty list, I'm going to say companies who have trashed the traditional Christmas party. Um, so I'm hearing more and more big companies who have stopped their Christmas party tradition. HR groups say that they're really seeing it more in small uh, small companies, but only 11.3% of employed Americans are still working remotely after the pandemic. So it's less common than I thought. So that Christmas party needs to come on back. Okay. Uh, my nice list is Trees for Troops, lots of North Carolina uh, tree Farmers are sending free trees through Trees for Troops uh, to uh, North Carolina military installations so that those soldiers can have a beautiful tree. And they put wreaths on, uh, up in Arlington, in Arlington Cemetery on all the graves, too. They do. Mitch, what's your New Year's wish? In a highly charged political year, I'm hoping that the debates are going to be on contrasting visions and viewpoints, not personal attacks, and that our elections will end with clear, uncontested results, whatever they are. Don't watch cable TV. New Year's <laughs> wish. And I'm hoping our elections will end on fair legislative maps. Okay. <laughs> New Year's wish. Civility, decency, perspective. New Year's like wish. Uh, my New Year's wish is that all of North Carolina's uh, public school students can finish the year in person with all of the things that we come to expect from school, circle time, football games, school dances, all of that. <laughs> are we getting close to that? I don't know. I think in some areas we are. Uh, you know, okay. Everybody's watching the numbers very closely. Okay, that's it for us. Great job, panel. Have a Merry Christmas. See you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.